Well, it is good for us to be in worship together here this morning. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here. And so greetings to you guys as well as uh, our friends over in the East Auditorium and in Lovington as well. And I just want to give a shout out to our uh, video producer, Jeremy Shaw, who put that together, which I just love that every time that uh, little video comes on, it's just like knowing even the magnificence of that uh, artistic expression, what a small iota of what that must have been like in the beginning, the creation, and what that could have possibly have been like. And uh, that's just a representation of what we've been looking at in our series, In the Beginning. We've been walking through uh, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Uh, So I invite you to turn there today in Genesis chapter 25 is where we'll pick that up. And uh, there's a Bible, if you don't have one of your own, in the pew rack in front of you here in the West. There's some folks walking around the East and also in Lovington, there's some Bibles to use there in all those locations. And as you turn in there, really just an understanding of what uh, we've been looking at. If you've missed a few, you can always catch those up at firstdecaturorg slash sermons. Uh, But just to kind of get us up to speed on what we've been looking at in Genesis is that we started first with not creation, but the creator. We took uh, the first four words as far as we got in week one, and we said, in the beginning, God. That before creation was the creator, that before the beginning was the one that uh, existed before uh, and will exist before and, and, there, and there is no end, as we said in these, uh, these readings here together. And then from there, there was creation. God created it, and he saw that it was good. And then from there, that goodness was broken. As sin entered the human existence, as Adam and Eve, they were deceived. They disobeyed God for the first time, which opened up a floodgate of curse of the curse of sin and billions of sin in humanity's history continued over the story of our, uh, of our history and, of course, a story of which we are part of. We, too, inherit that sinful nature and have sin in our own lives. But God... And that arguably is the two greatest words in all the Bible. But God, uh, who has a plan to make all things right and perfect again, reconciling humanity and the cosmos back into himself. We see the beginning of that plan play out in Genesis. Uh, We looked at it last week with Abraham. God promises Abraham in Genesis 12 that he's going to bless him and his descendants so that he then might bless the whole world through that line. And so that promise is made to Abraham and then that is continued and Abraham's son Isaac, and then an Isaac's son Jacob. And then from there, we see at the end of Genesis, uh, God keeping that plan uh, in motion through some work through uh, Joseph. And so we'll look at Joseph next week. Uh, But today, we're going to look at Jacob as we continue these storylines of really, essentially, you could say Genesis summed up is God working out his perfect plan through imperfect people. That's the story of Genesis, him continuing to work out his perfect plan through imperfect people. And we examined imperfect Abraham last week, and today we are certainly going to look at the imperfection side of Jacob. In fact, uh, Pastor BJ caught me in the office this week and asked, you know, what are you preaching on? And I said, Jacob, to, uh, to which he responded, essentially summing up the sermon in a phrase. And so you can go home after this. But uh, he basically said, ah, Jacob, a not so great guy where God still does great things through him. A not so great guy in the Bible who God still chooses to do some great things through him. And spoiler alert, it's the same story God has for you and me still. The story that God wants to work in us, to work through us, to do great things through, let's be honest, the not so great things about us to fulfill his purposes and his promises. 
And so let's see how we see ourselves as we look in the mirror of Jacob here this morning, in, starting in Genesis chapter 25. And uh, we've got a, a lot to look at here, uh, 12 chapters to cover, so giddy up. Uh, and we'll start in chapter 25, starting in verse 19, and uh, really get a good look at Jacob, even ironically before he's even brought into the world. And so the story of Jacob starts off this way. Chapter 25, verse 19. It says, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. And she actually became pregnant with twins. Verse 22, the babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, which means hairy. So hairy, your name means hairy, or maybe it means Esau if, you ever, if there's a hairy in the room today. Verse 26. After this, his brother came out, and his hand was grasping Esau's heel. And so he was named Jacob, which literally means to grab the heel. It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom still, or you could say a slang word for saying he deceives. Jacob means he deceives. And so Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. And so from there we see, starting in verse 27, uh, how this, which you could say started out in utero between them, starts to play out in their, their early years together as brothers. It says, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved, or you could say favored, Esau. But Rebekah, she loved or favored Jacob. It says, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau, he came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he is called Edom. Edom means red. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is my birthright to me? But Jacob said, in good brotherly fashion, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. Well, in the story of these two brothers, we see pretty quickly the trajectory of this in utero prediction uh, given about them playing out in their early days, uh, particularly in this scenario with the soup. And, you know, if we look at both of them, you know, Esau, I, I can relate to Esau. I, as much as the next guy, love a good pick two from Panera Bread, right? A soup and sandwich can get me through the day. But seriously, we see Esau trading 
his birthright and, and really witnessing the unworthiness of the responsibility that went with the firstborn rights in that day and of this promise, this commitment, this covenant that, that, um, that, that Abraham had for Isaac and then on to his kids. He's not worthy of it because he's willing to flippantly trade it for a bowl of soup. But however, Jacob, he doesn't do much better. We see the, the heel grabber, we see the deceiver taking matters into his own hands to swindle his brother out of his birthright. And so we see pretty early on that the trajectory of the heel grabbing deceit of Jacob is the way he is going to live up to his name many times over. The story continues in chapter 27 where both Jacob and Rebekah, they scheme together, they deceive together their father Isaac, or his father, her husband Isaac, to steal the firstborn blessing from Esau. The way they do this is they take advantage of Isaac's old age and vision impairment, and they put Esau's smelly hunting clothes and some goat skins on Jacob's arms so he feels hairy and smells like a hunter, and then goes to Isaac, and then it goes down this way. It says in Genesis 27, so he, Isaac went to him, went to Jacob, disguised as Esau, and he kissed him, and when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him. He blessed Jacob, thinking it was Esau, with the blessing that started with Abraham, that was going to Isaac, that was gonna continue on through the family line. But Jacob gets it by stealing that blessing. And so Jacob, rather than really trusting the promise of God that was already in play, as we see through that prediction, he takes matters into his own hands and outright steals what otherwise God already had perfectly planned. We don't ever get to see that plan because Jacob grabbed, deceived, manipulated, taking matters into his own hands rather than trusting the hand of God. He takes matters into his own hands instead of trusting God's hand of providence, his plan, his purpose, his sovereignty over it all. And if we're honest, and we look at Jacob and we look at the mirror of Jacob, I wonder for me, how many times, I look back, how many times have I, how many times have you, how many times have we, rather than trust the hand of God and his ways, taken matters into your own hands, into my own hands, in order to keep control of a situation rather than trust God in his ways and his word. So we'll dig into that a little bit more before our time's yet done. But we see Jacob certainly is living up to his name, grabbing the heel, deceiving, forcing, and manipulating to, to get things under his control rather than trusting God's. And so, nevertheless, but God, arguably the two greatest words in the Bible, but God still is gonna do some great things through a not so great guy in Jacob. And so chapter 28, if you wanna turn there, Jacob's story continues as he runs from home. He's running really not from home, but more from Esau, who apparently wants to kill him. Not real happy about this whole blessing stealing thing. And so Jacob flees, and this is how it plays out. It says in verse 10 of chapter 28. It says that Jacob left Beersheba and set out for, the, for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And angels of God were ascending and descending on it like a escalator at Dillard's or something. 
There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out from west to east, north to south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. (coughs) And here we see it again. God is reminding and re-upping his commitment, his covenant that he gave to Abraham. And a covenant is just really a, a phrase that captures the level of promise that God has committed. It's a promise that's unbreakable because of who God is. He chooses not to break it. It's a covenant, it's a commitment that he's gonna see through. Uh, it's, it's about who God is and what God is up to regardless of what Jacob is or isn't doing. It's a, it's a promise, it's a commitment, it's a plan based on God rather than Jacob, rather than man. And so that remains true of us still today. When it comes to God's plans, his promises, what he is up to, it has everything to do with God and not us. And so know this, for even seeing the Jacob within us and the challenges and the struggles and the unworthiness we might feel, know that God still will work through you, that God still wants to work through you regardless of you that God will work through you even regardless or in spite of you and me and how we might wanna bumble that plan in our own lives. And that's, as I hear that, I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. You know, God's gonna do what God's gonna do regardless of what I do or don't do. And, and that's good news, but if I'm honest with it, I'm kinda like, but only sort of. Because I'm like, okay, that's great, God, you're gonna do what you're going to do. But there's this other side of me that says like, what about me? Like, where do I come into this? Like, it's great that God's gonna do what he's gonna do through his perfect plan, uh, through imperfect people, but what about the imperfect person? What about the imperfect you and me? I mean, are we just a, a means to God's end? Uh, there was a phrase that kind of, kind of a dig that went around when I was in high school. I don't know when it started or if it's ended. You may, have you ever heard, like, you're such a tool. Have you ever heard that expression? You're such a tool. I don't know, it was, it was basically a, a way of saying, you're not your own person, you're just a means to somebody else's end. You're such a tool, you're just being used by somebody. And it's like, is that, is that all we are? Is that the totality of why we exist on the planet? Well, let's start here. First off, number one, the number one point and understanding of what we're gonna see in Genesis is that reality, that regardless of our imperfections, God's promise, his plan is the point. It's all about glory to God. But the flip side of that reality is what that plan is. So while it's always gonna be about God working through us to accomplish his plan, be encouraged that we are the result, we are the end of that plan, that God's perfect plan, that he wants to bring glory to who he is through us, or you could say, in us, that yes, God wants to work through you, but as he's doing that, part of that perfect plan is to also work in you. God wants to work through you as he works in you. And so let's see how that plays out for Jacob, that even though he's gonna work out his perfect plan through imperfect Jacob, he wants to work in imperfect Jacob as well. And so after his dream in chapter 28, where he sees God's gonna continue to work through him, uh, he goes on to live his life. He moves out to uh, where his uh, 
would-be father-in-law Laban uh, would be, and he falls in love with uh, one of Laban's daughters, Rachel, the younger daughter, and he agrees, Jacob, he agrees to work for Laban for seven years for her hand in marriage, which was something that was customary back then to do. And so he does this, he works seven years, and it says it was like, the seven years were like a moment because he was so in love with Rachel and couldn't wait to marry her, and it's all wonderful. And so the wedding day comes, and as they are going through the marriage ceremony, and it slips from day to dusk to night, Laban slips into the marriage tent, not Rachel, but Rachel's older sister, Leah, the oldest sister. And they didn't have electric lights that day, so the dark night, I don't know how that all plays out, but they consummate the marriage and Jacob wakes up to find out that he has not married Rachel, but in fact, Leah. And so we have Jacob, the deceiver, being deceived. The deceiver gets deceived and he gets a dose of what Proverbs warns of reaping what you sow. It says in Proverbs twenty two twenty eight that whoever sows injustice reaps calamity. And so he's got calamity coming all around him. And so he works another seven years in order to get Rachel's hand in marriage. And so now he's got the two wives and the situation. And it's, it's a 20 year run, just, it, just to give you the short of it, if you haven't read it yet and you can still read it, of the deceiver Jacob and his father-in-law Laban mutually deceiving one another for a 20 year run of great difficulty in Jacob's life. And so, yes, God is working in Jacob by disciplining Jacob through getting a dose of what he has been his entire life, to which you might say, well, that's not what I thought was going to happen in the story. I mean, it was sounding nice. You know, God wants to work through you and in you. I was kind of thinking like, change my heart, oh God, make it ever new. You guys know that song? Okay, I won't do that ever again. All right. Yeah, it's like, it's not all butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust here. This is difficult. The work that God is doing in Jacob is hard. The discipline he is experiencing is painful. And we know, we're, Hebrews 12, later on, will say, when it comes to the discipline of the Lord within difficult things, don't take that lightly. It says that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest, a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so we know this, doesn't mean we like it, but we know this. And so it goes on in Hebrews to say, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. I love that line. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. In other words, buckle up, Jacob. This isn't going to be pretty. And so it's not pretty. For 20 years, he struggles with his father-in-law, Laban. Finally, he gets out from underneath him. He takes his wives and his grand, you know, Laban's grandkids, and he runs off. Laban doesn't like this. And so Laban chases and pursues Jacob. So he, Jacob's on the run again. And so he's fleeing not Esau, but his father-in-law, Laban. But as he's leaving there to head back home, he discovers that Esau, remember him? He's coming from the other direction, come from home at him. And so he's got trouble on both sides. He's got Laban from this direction, his brother Esau, ain't nobody happy with him, and he's stuck in the middle. And you know, again, if you want a quick application, that's the kind of thing that always seems to creep up here. I can't tell you how many times that I feel like if maybe one of you and I have had a conversation about something to be praying for, very rarely is it, oh, there's just this one thing. 
How often is it, well, there's this thing, and then on top of that, this happened, and then right when that was going on, such and such came in. It's, you know, I was facing these financial challenges, and all of a sudden, my health goes to pot, or I've got this situation with my aging, you know, parents, and that's coming in, or, you know, students I know that we have in from college, you know, it's like, you know, all's well at school, but not really, and you're trying to figure that out, and then you go home, it's not like it used to be, and so you now you feel like there's this tension between home and school, or maybe it's a situation where you've been, you know, just hit hard at work and you come home and it feels like it's just as difficult there and so it's at work it's home it's at school it's with your parents it's with your health it's with your finances it's the uh, metaphorical stuck between a rock and a hard place that it's just pressing in on all sides that's where Jacob's at he's got Esau and Laban on both sides coming at him and Jacob true to his name, tries to take matters into his own hands. He tries to force and manipulate the situation. So as he's approaching his brother Esau, uh, he tries to butter him up a bit by sending gifts ahead of Esau so that when he has to go face to face with Esau, it might be a little better. And so the messengers go and they come back. Let's pick up the story there. Chapter 32, verse six. It's a lot of pages from where we just were. It'll be on the screen as well. It says that when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he is coming to meet you with 400 men with him. And so it's not just Esau, but it's 400 of his closest fighting men to to hang with him. And so it says in verse seven, in great fear and distress, Jacob, and just those two words there, fear and distress, in the original Hebrew, really understood literally, uh, could better be translated. And so Jacob had to go and change his underpants. <laughs> in great fear and distress, Jacob, he then schemes. He divides the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He's thinking, hey, if Esau comes and attacks one group, then the other group might be left to escape. And that continues. He sends like people ahead of him four more times with gifts and buttering up and all this, and he's plotting and he's scheming and trying to work the situation. But in the midst of that, he does stop and he does, in his desperation, pray to God. He does pray that God would be the one who delivers him from Esau, that he might continue that perfect plan that he has promised through his line. And so follow with me in Genesis 32, 23, where we pick up the results of that prayer, that interaction with God. It says this, after he, Jacob, had sent them, this is his whole family, he sent his family, his herds, everybody ahead of him, kind of on the front lines where he can kind of hang back from his brother Esau. Once he sent them all across the stream and he sent over his possessions, so Jacob was left alone. And in that solitude, it says a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And we're gonna see that that man was God himself. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Okay, and so we, we see Jacob being literally broken, but broken in part so that God can make him whole in a whole new way. Verse 26, the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Then, trying to work the situation, Then the man asked him, what is your name? And Jacob had to answer, Jacob. 
What is your name? He had to face what he has been facing since his very birth, his sinful nature, that he is Jacob. He is the heel grabber. He is the deceiver. But then, but God, here it is, verse 28. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob. Your name will no longer be deceiver. You will now, because I'm working in you, your name will be Israel. Your name will be Israel. And catch the storyline here. This is not, oh, cool, they're naming Jacob after that great nation, Israel, the God's people. No, no, no. This is where God defines who that nation is based on who he is making Jacob to be as he works, yes, through Jacob for the people of God, Israel, but also working in Jacob as he gives them an entirely new identity to work in him and through him to continue that promise, that perfect promise through imperfect Jacob, now Israel. God gives him a new name that would continue that line, the promise that was given to Abraham, Abraham's son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, which would one day produce the son of God, the promise of all promises, the blessing of all blessings, Jesus Christ, who would come to be the blessing for you and for me and for all people for the forgiveness of sin, a right relationship with God, and to be the beginning of making all of this right again until he comes again. That's how God works in and through Jacob. And so the story continues with Jacob. He says, then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and you have overcome. He has overcome. He has made it through what God wants to do in him and through him and now given great responsibility for that future. Verse 29, Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. And somehow in there he realized he saw God face to face. Verse 30, says that Jacob called that place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel as, as Jacob moved on. And he was limping because of his hip Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. And so this is a beautiful story, a powerful story. Yes, for Jacob, we are reminded that God is gonna work out his perfect purpose and plan through imperfect people, but good news to those imperfect people like you and me, part of that perfect plan is working within imperfect you and me to work not just through us, but in us as well that that is part of what his promise is, that he would work in us and through us, which is ultimately understood in the defining of who we are in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, he would later express that same understanding this way, that in the same way that Jacob was changed by God, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, that if anyone is in Christ, and so if you're, if you're nature, if you're defined by Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of your life, then know this, the new creation has come. You are a new creation. The old has gone and the new is now here. And all of this is from God. It's not of yourself. This is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And so here's the question that Jacob asks of all of us. As we look in the mirror of the Jacob within each of us, it's actually the same question that our students are gonna ask in their student ministry as they go through Genesis as well. So I just stole it because it was so good. But it's a simple question and that is, in what area of your life are you wrestling with God? 
Where is it that you are wrestling with God? Maybe wrestling against God rather than going with God. Where are you manipulating, grabbing hold of, getting ahead of God? You know, maybe for you, it's uh, an ethical hurdle that you are facing at work and you know it's coming and you know it's gonna be difficult and you know what certain people want you to do, but you know what God's word says to do. And you have to cross that hurdle. And it's the question, are you wrestling with God and are you working against him or are you gonna work with him? You know, students, I've had awesome conversations with uh, college students where it's like, I feel like this is what God's telling me to do, but then it's like, if I do this, I know there's not like really a, a, a huge money trajectory in this, but I know this is what God wants me to do. And do I do this fallback plan? It's like, okay, are you working the situation or are you working with God to trust him for what he has for you? Maybe for you, it's a strained relationship and the temptation is to force or manipulate what's happening there rather than what does God's word say about what you're facing? Is there forgiveness that needs to take place? Is there a confession that needs to happen? Is there reconciliation? Is there healing that when we trust God rather than work our own approach, our own Jacob within us? Maybe it's a situation from the past that is just grabbed a hold of you full of bitterness and you need to find uh, healing that God wants to have for you in that. Maybe it's uh, a worry about the future. I don't know what your specific situation is, but I do know that our good God knows, who knows all things knows what that is. And so for you, where is it that you are wrestling against God and you are inappropriately holding on to the old, missing the fact that the new has already come? that the new has already come and that all of this, what God wants to do is a gift from God, Second Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 5.18, who reconciled you to himself already through Christ. And so again, I don't know the answer to that specific question for your specific situation, but why don't we take some time to go to God in prayer to each ask as we do this together, how he wants to work in our situation that the hand of God would provide his purpose and his plan rather than our own. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, above all, we give thanks that we can even have this conversation because of the truth of 1 Corinthians 5, that you have reconciled us in a relationship to you through Jesus Christ. That the old is gone, the new has come, that we are a new creation. And so that is true now, that was true yesterday for the majority of us in the room and where it's not, God, I would uh, ask that your Holy Spirit would move in hearts to make that decision, to make you the Savior and Lord, to take their hand from forcing it all and to hand it all over to you, that you would lead both them in this life and for all of eternity as you make them right with you through the forgiveness of sin. God, for all of us, as we think and consider and reflect, bring to mind that situation where we have uh, inappropriately or been tempted to force, manipulate, uh, deceive, uh, whatever it is, God, that we've taken matters into our own hands rather than trust you, the hand of God. We are thankful that your plan is perfect, even in the midst of our imperfection, that you're gonna work through us and that you wanna work in us. And so God, may we just awaken to that truth that's already available. May we awaken where we have missed and grabbed hold of the old instead of the new. Would your Holy Spirit convict, remind us, scary as is, discipline us that we might discover the harvest that you want to make within each of our lives, through us and in us, of righteousness and peace with you according to the promises of your word. May it be by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, 
Amen.